started here today, we have, I will apologize, nothing, nobody, everybody wants to keep talking and we can fellowship after the service, that's the good part, so, alright, so I, I want to apologize, I, I had this great like outline, I ha- had all kinds of stuff on the screen for you to follow along with, and then my computer decided it wanted to update Windows last night, and when, when I started it up this morning, none of that was there. Now, I saved it, because I remember specifically going in and, and clicking Save As, and then deciding I didn't want to save it as something separate, um, because it was really just for this sermon, so then I was like, oh, I'll just leave it there, and, and we'll save it over top of that, and that's fine, I'll just get a new template from Tim the next time that I preach. Well... It wasn't there, so you have no notes, so you'll just have to make your own notes. Um, But the problem with that may be that I may just end up going off on some tangent and losing track. So, we may be here until 2 o'clock. I apologize. It's okay. There's no important football games until later this afternoon. So, I'm getting glares from the back row and then a cheer from one person. Um, But let's pray before we dive into the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the apostles who wrote to us and and who gave us knowledge that you wanted us to have. And for your spirit that guided them so that we have the true word. We pray that as we study this morning and we look into your word, that you guide us. Help our hearts to open up and hear what you have for us. Help us to see the teaching you have. And help us to live out lives that reflect that teaching. Pray all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, for those of you who may not have been with us or um, forgot where we were, we are going to be in James. We are starting chapter 2 this morning, so if you would turn there. Um, we're going to go ahead and we're going to look at the first part, uh, and we are going to um, dive right in. So let's go ahead, and, and I'm going to read, and would you look with me at um, verses 1 through 7. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? There's a little bit we have to understand about the early church. First of all, James is writing from Jerusalem to the church that has dispersed. So he is writing to churches that really fit all different forms, but in general, the early church met in people's homes. They didn't meet in big rooms like this where there's plenty of seats for everyone. They met in small rooms where all of us would try to cram into a room and there maybe were 20 seats, and there's more than 20 people here. So people would have to stand, people would have to sit on the floor. So when he is writing about this assembly, he's basically saying, you're choosing among yourself who you're going to offer these seats to, that we have limited amounts. And you're saying to the poor man, you can sit on the floor, you can stand in the back, but to the rich, 
why don't you have a seat here? I saved this just for you. So that's kind of the the situation that we find ourselves in. There's a little more implication in it as well, because when they are saying assembly, that's not just the general church gathering. That's more often the word that they would use for when they were gathering for very distinct purposes. A lot of times this could be when they're uh, disciplining somebody, or it could just be when they're handling church business. But there is a more of a weight to it than the average gathering. And in that, when there is such a weight of this, this gathering, they're still separating. And they're saying, well, the rich are more important than the poor. And that is the caution that James is putting out there. He is saying that you can't separate this. And it's the caution that we're going to look in detail at. Now, he does make a comment here about the man wearing a gold ring Uh, Many of you are wearing rings. I sometimes wear a ring. It depends. We don't have the situation there. There, you only wore rings depending on your wealth. The more rings you had, the more wealthy you were. It was kind of an outward sign of how much money you had. It was very distinct. And it was something that he called attention to, and they would have understood that a lot different than we would because it's not culturally where we are today. But that would be something that they have. But we do treat wealthy with respect, with deference. It is something that is culturally, and especially in America, just part of who we are. It's part of what we um, think, is, and we constantly are looking at what the, the rich are doing. In fact, every year Forbes releases a list of the top 400 wealthiest people in the world. Every year. Anyone guess who number one is? It's been the same person for 15 years. Bill Gates. He's number one on that list for a very distinct reason, because he has worked really, really hard to get there, and he constantly is working really hard to stay there. It's not really, for him, a status thing. For him, it's the work ethic he has put into his company, but that's not who he always was, and we'll look at that a little further. But we are obsessed with the wealthy and the prominent in our society And that lends to some very difficult things when we look at this and we see James kind of condemning that. So why why is it unhealthy or wrong to show favoritism? And and he's calling out wealthy favoritism because that was what the church at that time really struggled with. But we we show it in other ways. Why is that wrong? There's a couple reasons. One, it's inconsistent with Christ's teaching. Christ never said, go and show the wealthy more respect. In fact, he even says, let the little ones come to me. They would, they would have shown only adults any respect, and kids weren't allowed, and he has the kids come to him. In fact, there are many times that Jesus steps out of his way to see those that have been marginalized in society. If you look at his disciples, you've got a tax collector. You've got sinners that are following him. Especially look at like the women. They're the ones that really would have been on the outside of society. If you look at who he talks to through his journeys, Christ went to the woman at the well, someone that would not have associated with Jewish people, someone that even in that society was on the outside of Sumerian culture. And yet, Christ went there. Christ crossed the sea to go talk to a guy who was living in tombs, wasn't in his right mind, and was even pretty much being locked up in chains 
until he was too strong and broke those chains and ran away to the tombs. Christ goes to those people because that he isn't looking at these outward signs that we place. So it's inconsistent with what Christ has taught. It insults people. I mean, it specifically insults people that are made in God's image. We are all created in the image of God. Every single person on earth is created in that image. And by basically raising one up to a higher status, we are insulting those that we have placed at a lower status. It's a byproduct of selfish motivation. We, we want to be them, so we're trying to be associated with those people, hoping that somehow that rubs off on us. We're thinking about ourselves, though, when we do that. It goes against the biblical definition of love, and we're going to look at that towards the end of this section, but but love is blind. We talk about that, you know, love is blind, but it really, Christ's love is blind because he's not looking at what we look at on the outside. Shows a lack of mercy and it's sin. So why is favoritism wrong? It's, it's sin. That's, that's pretty much the ultimate result of what we do when we show favoritism to somebody. And that's what James is calling out. So he goes through all that and he talks about the standing and sitting, but then he says, you have dishonored the poor man are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. Hmm. He calls those that drag the normal ones of people into court and the ones who blaspheme the name of Jesus. The reason that I think that they do that, and we see it even in today's culture, that a majority of them really have no need for Jesus, and, and that's because they have what they need, what they think they need. They have everything they would need on this earth. When we're looking eternally, they don't. But they aren't looking eternally. They're looking at momentary pleasures, at things that we would only strive for and, and look and say, well, that would be great to have that car or that house be able to just go to Europe on a whim. Those are great things, but ultimately, that all passes away and fades. But the rich who have all those things, they just joy in those things. They just have happiness, and they just, they just go do what they want, so they don't need Jesus, or at least in their minds, they don't need Jesus. And we know that to be false, but when we go and we show favoritism to those who are wealthy, as the people in this time did, we are showing that as kind of like, the it's okay to do that. It's okay to have lots of wealth and not worry about what Christ thinks or how you follow him. But that is not what James wants us to do. I think that we uh, can look back at the rich young ruler. Here is someone who had everything he went to Jesus and he said, well, I, I pray and I, I follow you and I listen to the teachings. And I follow the law. What, what else do I need to do? Jesus just simply said, sell everything you have and give to the poor. This man couldn't do that. He couldn't give up what he had. He couldn't give up the status he had. He couldn't give up the society that he lived in. And Jesus simply watches him walk away in sadness and says it is easier for, the, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. 
Because the thing is that looking at wealth is sometimes hard to give that up. But Jesus wants to show him that it's about your heart. That the poor are wealthy too in a different way. That's a lesson he's trying to teach this man that he just misses. He doesn't associate with the poor. I imagine that he is missing the point. We see favoritism throughout our society, but there's favoritism that happens in the Bible all over the place. So we look at some of the stories of the Bible and we look at what favoritism happened there. We can also see the result of what happened there. We don't know what the result happened in the church that James is writing to. We don't know what each individual church was struggling with. and We don't know what the church in Jerusalem was struggling with that led him to write this. And we don't know what the end result of that was. But we do know what happened to some of the favoritism in the Bible. If we look at the story of Isaac, Isaac showed favoritism of Esau over Jacob. Meanwhile, Rebekah showed partiality to Jacob over Esau. That created a lot of conflict. That conflict escalated, and eventually we get one more generation down, and Jacob showed partiality to Joseph over all of his brothers. So right there, in just, just two generations, we end up with all of God's people essentially ending up in Egypt. Now, God works through that, but that, that wasn't because of anything other than the sin that they were living in. Now, those circumstances just constantly show us that there is problems that arise when we get into favoritism. So we may look at what is going on, and we may look at those 400 wealthiest people, and we may look at Bill Gates, and we may say, well, you know, here's someone who worked hard. Here's someone who who struggled and worked hard and But there's another side of the coin because there's also people on that list who really were just greedy. There were people that were dishonest. There were people that were selfish. They took from other people what wasn't theirs. It wasn't necessarily about hard work. It was about taking from others. If we look at what Bill Gates did, he started a company. A little bit down the line, he got fired from his own company. Then he came back and worked it because of the way that his mentality was, he saw that he was a problem. His hard work was great, but he wasn't treating people with respect. There are many people on that list that don't treat people with respect. Heck, there are many people on that list that the only reason that they're on the list is because their parents worked hard and they just inherited the money. So we look at like the top, you know, 100 people that are on that list, and there's probably 30 or 40 of them that don't do anything. There's, they just, they exist. They spend the money that they have. Looking at that list, we can, we can look at a, uh, someone you may know. His name's Sam Walton. He started Walmart. And Walmart, a couple of years ago, had, had a big issue. I don't know if you've heard about this. Um, and this would show some of the greed that's going on. But there was a woman named Deborah Shank. She was a, a stalker at Walmart. She had health insurance through them and everything. She got in a really bad car accident and went through tons of medical care, was, was having all these issues. And she, um, 
paid $470,000 in medical bills, or her insurance paid $470,000 in medical bills. So those medical bills were, were what took care of her. That's a lot of money. So you can imagine how bad this was. Her family sued the trucking company that was responsible. She won $100 million in after legal fees and some negotiating because I, I don't know the whole story there about how the, the courts handled it. She actually received $417,000. And after she received that, Walmart then sued her for $470,000 and won. Because Walmart had in their policy that if somebody would go and they would earn, because of an accident, legal fees, that they could then get recoup the money they spent on the health insurance for that person. So they went and sued her for that money and won. Now, if you look at that, she only won $470,000. So now she's paying Walmart for what she received. She didn't even make money from her legal suit to cover what Walmart took back. I chose some of the greed of the companies about what that they, some of these people at the top end do in dishonesty. Now, that's not the whole story because the Walmart didn't end there. They didn't, didn't just finish the story there and say, okay. Because people at the company went and started looking at it and saw that this was a wrong thing to do. And instead of taking her money, they said, we're not going to take it. We won the money. Fair and square, we can legally take it from you. But we're not going to. In fact, you get to keep the money that we paid out, and you get to keep the rest of the money you won from your suit, and we're going to change our policies to fix that loophole because it's not right. So they did go and look back and fix it, but that, their policies were set up in advance. So that was a thought in their mind that they could do that legally, and the court said, Absolutely. The dishonesty of the rich is what James is writing against. They're the ones that are taking these people into court. And yet, when someone comes in and they have great clothing and a ring and they're, they're you know, one of those that are wealthy, they're kicking the poor out of the seats and saying, come sit here in this nice spot. Why don't you come sit right down in front? Why don't we, why don't we roll out the red carpet for you? Oh, and you don't have much wealth? Why don't you sit over there on the floor? This is kind of the, the area that James is really challenging this church. And he's challenging us. So why is this something that we struggle with? Why is this what, what we still struggle with? This is just one area that James is calling out because it was an area. But we struggle with partiality in the church. Why do we struggle with partiality with the rich? Why would, if somebody came in that was worth a couple billion dollars, would we show partiality to them? I think there's a couple reasons. One, we'd rather identify with someone who has apparent success over apparent failure. Now, I think of some, some people that would be on that lower end score if you look at them maybe before you would know them. Um, because there are plenty of artists that we know, Christian artists, whose parents were, were missionaries that really didn't make much money and struggled through, and they, they didn't do much. I think of Jeremy Camp as one example. His parents 
when they became Christians, before they were Christians, they were drug addicts. They were doing all kinds of stuff. They had very little money because of the lifestyle they lived. They, com- they were uh, brought under God's grace, and they still have very little money. And the reason they have very little money is because his dad purposefully turned down a well-paying job because he would have had to work Sundays. And instead, they spent that time that they, he could be working at church and working with the people in their church. He became a pastor of a church, still not making much money. In fact, making so little that they used almost their entire life savings to buy Jeremy Camp his first guitar. He had been borrowing guitars all through his life, and they bought him his first guitar. And we look at his ministry. His ministry is due to his parents' ministry. But if you met them before any of that happened, would you have showed difference to them? Would they be someone that you would go, yes? Or would it be more likely that you would see someone who is maybe more known, someone who is a great preacher, who is making more money because they're in a larger church and can be supported more, would they be the one? If we were coming, trying to figure out who was going to come and, and guest speak here, would we pick Jeremy Camp's father, who went through struggles in his life, who has a thriving church but isn't someone well-known? Would we choose John Piper, someone that I'm sure you all recognize his name? I think that becomes a struggle for us because we also look at some of the renown of people and we don't realize that there's times where his message is going to be greater, but that doesn't make him a better person to come and speak just because he's more well-known. Yeah, that might fill this. We may say, hey, Waynesboro, John Piper's coming and that may fill this room. It may, we may have people sitting, standing and sitting out in the the, um, out in the lobby here, and we may have people on the stage because we don't have any room, and that may be great, but that doesn't mean the message is going to be any stronger. But yet we would do that at the drop of a hat, and that's a different type of partiality. So we have this struggle with partiality. I think one of the other things that we treat wealthy better, as we're still looking at that, is that we want to be wealthy. It's the American dream why America exists. It was the new land. It was where everyone came to go, to make a living, to become the top 1%. That's, that's the American dream, and it's still something that is talked about today. So that becomes something that we struggle with. Maybe the last thing is that we just want the wealthy to come here and help support our church. Somebody comes in, and they, they're worth couple billion dollars, maybe we want them here because they'll make, they'll give so much that, that we can do every ministry opportunity that we can think of, that we can go and reach this city in ways that we've never been able to because we will have un, almost unlimited funds, more money than we could possibly spend. But does that make it them more important than anybody else in this room? If we look at what Jesus said about the widow's might, he showed importance in her offering. Not because it was great, but because it was given from the heart. 
So when we look at these things, and we look at great speakers, and people with great renown, and people with tons of money, showing partiality to them is saying that their heart isn't as important as someone who maybe doesn't have as much to give. Maybe someone who's quieter. Maybe someone who sits in the back, not because they want to uh, hide back there, but because they're just, that's the place that they like to sit. They want to be quiet. They want to be not as well known. But yet they're the ones who are serving in the background. Does that make them less important? There's so many times in scripture that we talk about these issues and we look at this and James is calling out one of the biggest ones for this church, but that partiality permeates everything. It's not just about wealth. It's about maybe where you serve, maybe about the gifts you have. It's about how well you're known. Those are the things that we struggle with. I mean, think about it this way. If we were sitting here and, and we're just about to start the service and a whole bike gang rolled up, they just on their motorcycles, tattoos, full in leather, and they're just, they're outside and they're, they're out there having a good old time and then they walk through the doors, what would your reaction be? Would there be a bit of panic? There would be a bit of fear? I think that there's something to be said about how we view different people. There would be something that we would be struggling with here. Would you, would you want them sitting next to you? Would you say, hey, I got a seat up here next to me? Or would you kind of let them go off in the corner and sit by themselves and never talk to them? We have these images of people that, that differ from us, people that we struggle with, and, and we, we struggle with those differences. And yet James calls us out. And he says that that is wrong. And moving on in, in verse 8, he's going, to, he's going to develop this further and talk about the law of love. And he's going to talk about what we really need to be doing. So let's go ahead. Let's look at James Chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 8 to 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder... You have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So love your neighbor as yourself. Would you allow those bikers to come in and sit next to you? They're your neighbor. It can be a struggle. Especially if it's someone you actually do know. Sometimes we know people and we don't want to invite them to church because people will be like, oh, you invited that person? What were you thinking? But maybe those are the people that we we should be inviting. Maybe those are the people that need to hear the word of God. The people that we think are struggling the most, that are so far away from God. Those are the people that we want to be talking to. Think that what James says here 
you fulfill the royal law, love your neighbors yourself, you really struggle with one of the things that he said earlier. And that's the partiality. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, it's going to be really difficult to discriminate from a position of love. I mean, discrimination is a clear violation of that. So whether we discriminate by dress, by race, by wealth, by social class, by sex, by if you're wearing a Redskins jersey, by if you uh, think that somehow Pittsburgh's going to win today. (laughs) If you're discriminating on these things, and we do a lot on a lot of those issues, well, you're not loving. You're not you're not able to discriminate from a position of love. If you put love first, it will be impossible to discriminate. And if you just try to put love first, because we are going to fail, it is not going to be 100% of the time. But if you try to put love first, you're going to find a very difficult time discriminating. Because you're going to be striving towards the goal of loving your neighbor as yourself So when you strive towards that goal, you're going to find it very difficult to turn away quickly and discriminate. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Once again, Jesus does these big summary statements that I think that the Pharisees missed, a lot of the people at that time missed, um, I love your neighbor as yourself. That's the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the that's the summary of the commandments. You just love, and all the commandments fall in line. And this is the same thing. Whatever you want somebody to do to you, you do to them. And that's the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are what we call the Old Testament. The entirety of the Old Testament, he just summarized by saying, Do unto others what you want them to do to you. He basically said, God has given you this whole history that you have missed the big point. You've missed it. And James is telling his church, you're missing the big point. You are, you are determining that some people are better than others, and you're going to associate with those that are better than others, and you're missing the big point, which is to love. That's it. Simple as that. Love. And he goes on and he starts talking about what the issue here is. And he says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin. And then he says, if you keep the whole law except for one thing, then you broke the whole law. And he's telling them, you can't go, well, you know, we let the rich sit here and we, we put the poor there, but we're great everywhere else. That's, that's still breaking the law that God put down. He goes on and he starts looking at, he says the other thing. He says, do not commit adultery and do not murder. They were both said, God put them down. But if you, you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you broke the law uses a completely different reference. Something that they may have understood. Yeah, well, yeah, I understand that. If I kill somebody, that's broken the law. 
But he's comparing it to them showing partiality and saying, if you do that, if you don't show everybody the same love, you have broken the law. It's just as if you've murdered. It's just as if you've committed adultery. So when we look at different people and we, we don't show that love, and here it's even worse because this is in the assembly. This isn't even outside of their doors. This is people who are gathering together to follow Christ, and they are breaking this. And it's not, it shouldn't be just inside our walls, but it's the same thing as if we do that in here. As if we say, well, sorry, I, I can't talk to you because you don't have the same wealth as me. Or, sorry, I can't talk to you because you like to sit in the back and I like to sit in the front. Now, we're just not going to associate. There's differences here that we take outside of these walls because there's still going to be a struggle with people who do not follow Christ. But the struggle there, it should never be to discriminate against them in any way. The struggle there should be how to show them love that they understand. How to show them the love of God in ways that they understand without giving into the world. And James is writing this and saying, you will be accountable when you show partiality to the whole law. And he goes and says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Everything we do, speaking and acting is everything we do. We either talk or we do it. And he's saying all of that, everything we do, needs to be as if you were going to be judged. Every action, every thought, every deed needs to be as if you're going to be judged because we are going to be judged. God is going to judge us. And we will be judged on every part of the law. As Christ said, In Matthew, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Christ himself said the law isn't going anywhere. We still are under the law. There's a difference between us, though, and who he was talking to. Because we know that Christ came and died to fulfill the law. He came and gave himself up on the cross so that all those commandments that we break, all the partiality we show in the world, we are forgiven of. But James doesn't leave it at that point of grace. And the reason I think he doesn't is because he wants us to be like Christ. And that's where our struggle is, because we're not. Sin is in our lives and it is pulling us apart. And we are constantly at this struggle between mercy and judgment. 
And that is the struggle that we face, and it's a struggle that his church faced. And he was saying, you're judging among yourselves based on wealth. We judge among ourselves based on many different things. And it's the struggle that we need to be cautious against, because judgment without mercy, and one who has shown no mercy will be shown none. So our mercy that we show and we need to show through this needs to be without judgment. We need to show mercy to the poor. We need to show mercy to those we disagree with. We need to show love to those that we disagree with. If mercy is shown, God will show mercy. But if mercy is not shown, then God will judge without mercy. It's a really challenging point. That's the the point that he is saying. But then James finishes, simply says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So love your neighbor as yourself. Struggle against the, the partiality that you show. Struggle against the sin that crops up of thinking people are are different because everyone is made in the image of God. Whether rich, whether poor, whether of a different race, whether of a different nationality, whether they are the, uh, like the same things you do, everybody is made in the image of God. And so our love for them needs to be as Christ's love was for us. As while we were yet sinners, he came and died for us. He loved us first. That is why we love. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, you have given us a a passage that shows us the struggles in our heart. The struggles that set us up for failure. In those struggles, we know that your grace will bleed through and your grace will show triumph. You have loved us first, and it is your love for us that lets us love others. So help us through your love to love those that we struggle to love, to love those that may think differently than us, that may speak differently than us, that may look differently than us. Help us to love the poor. As you have said, the poor will be with us always. We may struggle to, to love those that, that don't seem to, to care, that don't seem to want to follow you, but we pray that, that your grace will flow through us and that our love for them will abound evermore. Help us to love those that, that don't follow your word. Help us to love them enough to tell them of your love for them. Because you have loved us so much and your grace has abounded so much for those that follow you. And we pray that as we face our struggles, that we can stand on your grace and we can live lives that proclaim who you are. Pray all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.